You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. We're going to read scripture. So Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 to uh, Philippians 2, verse 11. Let's turn there in our Bibles. If you, if you have a phone, you can open that up too. It can help to, to trace along in our Bibles or on our devices as we listen to the, the sermon as well. So Philippians 1.27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened by anything in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that For the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was on the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Help us to respond in faith. Thank you, Jeff. Hello, my name is Dan, and I am a a system pastor at AHC. I'm normally with the uh, First Congre, but I do help uh, with worship here in AHC, so I I do know uh, some of you, and it's a real joy and privilege to bring God's Word and to um, spend this time together. Would you uh, join me in a word of prayer before we jump in? Lord, we thank you that you are the God who serves us, who suffered for us, and who saves us. And, oh, Lord, today we pray that if there's one thing we walk away this morning is to see the beauty of Christ, the humility of Christ, and the exaltation of Christ, Lord. We pray, oh, Lord, that we'll walk away with just a greater sense of how great our God is. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask, would you please open your word to us and open us to your word? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, after I did an uh, internship at RAC in 2017, I went to the United States to uh, study in seminary. And if you don't know what seminary is, it's basically like Bible school where um, people get graduate degrees. So I did a master's for about four years. During my time there in Louisville, Kentucky, I became friends with Harrison, and we got quite close that we could be very candid with one another. Uh, 
And so I still remember one afternoon, we were talking, and then Harrison suddenly looks me in the eye and says, Dan, do you want to be the man? <laughs> the man? Dan, the man? What's the man? Harrison asks again, do you want to be the man? And what I soon realized was that Harrison was asking whether I wanted to climb the Christian corporate ladder. You see, during my time in school, I noticed a culture of competition and also ambition. Yes, not everyone was like that, but I did see a lot of uh, men and women come from all over the country in the United States and all over the world to get a degree at my school with the hopes of landing a job maybe as a, a small town pastor for a few years and then moving on to bigger and better things. You know, some would try to get an associate pastor role in a mega church in a suburban area or maybe move on to uh, pastor a larger church in maybe in an urban setting. And along the way, you know, uh, guys who want to take more degrees write for uh, Christian websites that all of us uh, regularly read. And the hope is that one day, one day, some of us will climb to the top of the ladder and become an influential Christian leader of a large mega church. If this question troubles you, then I would like to ask us, before we pass judgment on my friend who was like really direct, we need to ask ourselves, do we bring the same mindset of climbing the ladder into our faith and into our church? In Singapore, competition is everywhere. Didn't we climb the ladder in school? Don't we climb the ladder in our careers? It's not a question of whether you climb the ladder or not about how high you want to climb. I was told as a young boy, you better study hard in school, get good grades so that you can go to a good school and get a good job. Over uh, Chinese New Year, in a few uh, weeks, we'll probably hear, hey, do you know your cousin just upgraded to her first condo? When are you going to buy your first one? The thing is, whether we like it or not, these are the waters we all swim in. Society tells us that if you want to be happy, you need to be better than everyone else or be the best version of yourself. Climb the ladder. And the question we have to ask ourselves is that do we bring the same mindset in our Christianity and in our relationship with the church? Because when we look at Christ, when we see the mind of Christ, we see the gospel. God, creator of heaven and earth, the sovereign one, the omnipotent one, did not come to be served. He did not come to push people around. But he came down, condescended, became a man, lived the life we should have lived, died the death that we all deserve on the cross, and rose again. And this is the gospel, that if you put your faith in Jesus Christ today, you call him Lord and Savior, all your sins are forgiven because Christ died in your place. We are saved only by the sure grace of God. It is totally free. But if you really believe in the gospel, it will change your life. It will change how you think. It will reorientate all your priorities it has to, 
If we say we follow Jesus, how can we live and think in a way that looks more like the world and less like him? And so my aim today for, for this sermon is to show us what living for the gospel looks like, how it will change the way we think and live. And I have three points for us to consider from Philippians 1, 27 to 2.11. The first thing, what living for this gospel looks like, that we'll be of one mind in suffering. Number two, that we'll be of one mind in serving. And lastly, we'll be of one mind in Christ who suffered and served for us. So let's jump in. So we've seen in Philippians, Paul is in prison and after praising God for the Philippians for their partnership in the gospel and the progress that they're making in their faith. Now in chapter 1, verse 27, he issues the first command, the first imperative, the first instruction. And what does he say in verse 27 of uh, chapter 1? Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. What Paul is saying here is live for something bigger than yourselves. Devote your life to this gospel message. Don't be like the world that seeks to serve itself with selfish ambition and conceit. Live for something bigger. He goes on to say, so that whether I come and see you or I'm, I'm absent, remember, Paul wants to be with the Philippian church, but he is languishing alone in prison. I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul here has in mind a military image. Remember, in those days, the Roman Empire was the, the sovereign. And so he is appealing to this image of a Roman battalion standing firm against enemy forces as they point and try to attack. They're standing firm, locked in arms against external opposition. Standing firm. Striving has this picture of the army walking in lockstep gaining enemy ground, attacking, trying to conquer their opponents. And Paul is saying to this colony in Philippi, which was a Roman settlement, that as Christians, you're not just saved to have relationship with God alone. No, you're saved into a team, a body, a community. And we are all called to live for something bigger than ourselves, for the defense of the gospel, but also for evangelism, for the striving, the pushing forward of this good news that God has come and God has saved us all because of the cross. Strive for the gospel. Stand firm in, for the faith of the gospel. But if this wasn't challenging enough, the apostle goes one notch higher and he says in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Now, no one really likes to hear this, but what is very clear from church history and in scripture is that if you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you will have enemies in your life. Sometimes physical, other times definitely spiritual. You know, I still remember when I was in seminary, I would hear of stories of schoolmates who shared that if they went back home to their, home, uh, to their country, they would be arrested at the customs because of their faith. You can look across the causeway and read of stories of pastors being abducted because they are Christian leaders. I know of a friend here in RHC, a dear brother, who shared of the heartache of having his family skip out of his wedding because he had become a Christian 
and they decided to sever ties. If you want to be a Christian, you will have enemies in your life. Maybe not in such an overt way, but haven't we experienced being called bigots and narrow-minded because of our Christian views about sexuality? Haven't we felt the disapproval from family members when we feel it's so important to preach the gospel to a loved one who is at his deathbed and they simply don't understand? If you want to be a Christian, you will suffer persecution because Jesus suffered persecution as well. But what does Paul tell the church? Not, do not be frightened in anything by your opponents, verse 28. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. The good news for the Christian is that when we suffer for the gospel, it is not pointless. It is not in isolation. God sees. God sees your suffering for him. And Paul makes a very troubling statement that this suffering, us as Christians receiving persecution, this is a clear sign of our salvation. But those who are persecuting the church, God will come and judge on the day of the Lord. If this isn't challenging enough, he turns up another notch in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, the, the word granted here is gifted, it's a gift, you should not only believe in him, so we can all affirm that faith is a gift from God, in the same way that faith enables us to know God, see him, be changed by him, the apostles goes on to say, not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. What is Paul saying here? That like faith, suffering is a gift. You know, if you come here today and you believe that Christianity is all about self-improvement, that, you know, I, I want to consider this uh, religion so that it can help me overcome my emotional struggle, um, issues that I have in my family of origin. These are not uh, totally wrong. But I think what's very clear in Paul's life, in Jesus' life, is that as Christians, we will suffer. We need to pray for God to work in our lives. There's nothing wrong with asking God to give us favor in our careers. But when we read these verses and we struggle with the reality of suffering, sometimes it points to the reality that perhaps we are too steeped into the mindset of the world, that we look at Christianity primarily about what we can get, how we can improve, how we can grow. But Paul calls us to suffer for the gospel with one another, and this is a gift. Christian writer Vanita Randall Wisner, who herself has gone through a lot of suffering, uh, losing a newborn, uh, health issues, and going through a divorce she didn't want to uh, have, writes that the gift is not the suffering itself, but it is the turning to God in suffering. Like Moses in the wilderness, David on the run from Saul, you and I, when we've, when we've walked through the valleys of suffering, isn't it true that we come so much closer to the face of God 
not on the mountaintops of our success and advancement, but in the valleys of our anguish. Recently, I attended a wake uh, that happened under very difficult circumstances. And I, I won't go into details, but I've never experienced such a black hole of grief as I sat there in the room. And we're all just mourning and questioning, how can death <laughs> be so common? It's, there's something just very wrong with death. And as I sat there, one of the loved ones was preaching passionately, holding back tears, calling us to put our faith in Jesus because of the resurrection. If you are a Christian, death is not your final destination. Because Jesus rose from the dead, so will we when we put our faith in him. And I cannot quite explain it, but as I sat there listening to the gospel in the midst of suffering, I felt that Jesus was in the room with his people. I felt that Jesus was there with us. If the greatest gift that God can give to us is himself, then suffering prepares us like no other way to receive that gift. In other words, when Jesus is all that you have, then you realize that Jesus is all that you need. And that is why suffering is a gift. Because when we suffer for the gospel, we tell the whole world and ourselves that Jesus is better. So this is how our mind and our lives will change if we truly live for the gospel. We'll be of one mind in suffering for the gospel. Number two, we'll be of one mind in serving one another. Look with me to Philippians 2.1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, what Paul is saying here is that if God is truly working in your life, if you've been encouraged by the love of Christ, if you've been comforted from love by the Father, if the Holy Spirit dwells in you so that you have experienced His affection and sympathy, Paul says in verse 2, complete my joy by being united, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, one mindset, one attitude, be one. And don't you find it so interesting that Paul is languishing in the prison cell and he doesn't say, complete my joy by praying that God will deliver me from my chains. He doesn't say, complete my joy by sending me books or my favorite dish so that I'll be comforted. What does he say? Complete my joy by being united, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Why? Why does he call for unity in the church? I think we, we see the reason for that in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You see, the Philippine church was doing well. In fact, we, we see the apostle overflow with love and affection for the church. But not all is well. You see, Paul could see the storm clouds gathering in the distance, and he wanted to nip the issue at the butt and not uh, end up having another Corinthian situation. And what he's saying is that in the same way that I'm calling you to be united against the external threat of persecution for the health of the church and for the gospel, do the same now to be united against internal strife, disunity. He's saying, watch out for church politics. And what's the cause of this division? What's the cause of this disunity? 
selfish ambition or conceit. Conceit in the Greek can be translated as vain glory. This is a sense of uh, emptiness of trying to pour glory onto ourselves. It is bringing in the mindset of the world to make much of ourselves, to climb the ladder, to come to church, putting ourselves first before other people. This attitude, this mindset will destroy the church. And Paul says, don't do anything out of it. What does this look like for us? It can be a small thing where we come to church expecting the church to fulfill our needs primarily. Yes, you know, we um, believe in good pre- uh, faithful preaching, uh, we may like the music, we may even serve. But why we're really here <laughs> is that we expect the church to solve our problems. And there's nothing wrong with seeking help. But if we're putting ourselves in the center, if church exists just for our own benefit, very soon we'll find that our problems will not be solved, will not be addressed. You know, it might, it might sound like, why doesn't anyone see me at church? Why doesn't anyone take the effort to say hello to me? Don't they know what I bring to the table? This must not be a good church. This must not be a faithful church. Or it can be something bigger where our convictions and what we believe to be the most important thing is, uh, needs to be done in the church. So for example, if for you to be a Christian, the most important thing, the, the one thing is that we must serve the poor and the marginalized. We must pour ourselves out to help those who are less fortunate. And when we do it, of our uh, convictions, if we're not careful, we'll start comparing what we do with everyone else. Look at me. Look at what I've done for the gospel. What about these people? How come they are not as loving? How come they don't see? It comes from a good place. But if we're not careful, we can make our preferences, our convictions into the main thing. We can be seeking vain glory. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German theologian, had a really powerful quote, which uh, I'll paraphrase. Basically, he says that people who have an idealized expectation of Christian community, when it's confronted with the reality of Christian community, um, one thing tends to happen. These people with their idealized uh, vision start to accuse other people. And then after that, they start accusing God then they start accusing themselves. Why? Because the image of Christian community that they expect to be present is not what scripture talks about. They are so focused on themselves, what they want out of church, even for good reason, that they are willing to trample, destroy what they see as not ideal. And friends, we have to look into our hearts and ask ourselves, ask for forgiveness if we have acted in the same. Now, if being conceit and selfish ambition is making much of ourselves, then humility is making much of other people. What does the apostle go on to say in verse 3? But in humility, 
count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Humility is not just looking at what we want, what we think is right, but sometimes it's showing grace to say that, hey, we can agree to disagree. We're not there yet, but you know, we're going to try to get there. But let's take time now to serve you, to hear what you think, to help your needs. You know, as an assistant pastor, I have the privilege of uh, seeing this in action. Recently, I helped out in a wedding, and the, the bride and the groom were really quite stressed because two weeks out of their uh, big day, they had no keyboardists. And so they asked me whether I could help. And um, I uh, texted a few people, no responses. And then on one Sunday, I think it was like two Sundays before, um, they approached uh, this keyboardist from the worship ministry, and she had no prior relationship with them, heard their, their request, and said yes. And it's nothing special, very ordinary, but what I loved about it was this keyboardist didn't just seek her own benefit, right? I mean, there'll be a cause to practice, there'll be a cause on Saturday morning being totally given to somebody that she doesn't really know that well, but she chose to do it in humility because she considered the needs of others above herself. Or it can be a bigger thing of um, a sister in, in RHC who uh, has a close friend, uh, a Christian brother, who recently went through a big career transition. And she saw that he was really struggling. Despite knowing that this brother, this friend, had significant physical uh, challenges, she decided to hire him for her business. Now, this is a risk. I don't know about you, but um, I wouldn't hire my friends uh, for, for my business. I, I mean, I, I like to have a dichotomy, but that's just me. But she did. She did. And she took the risk uh, for her business to help this friend. And this is what church looks like. This is the vision that Paul wants us to have of our gatherings, of what this church can be, this new humanity, this people who do not live for themselves and their benefit to climb the ladder, but are willing to come down and to help other people come up. And so if we live for the gospel, how would it, how would it change the way we think? It will help us. It will, we will be of one mind in suffering for the gospel. We'll also be of one mind in serving one another. My final point, the third thing is, we'll be of one mind in Christ who suffered and served us. So now you've uh, listened to me for a, a while and you might be thinking, you know, Dan, um, I like what you're saying. It's really good. I, I want to believe in what, what you are sharing. In fact, I believe in it. But you don't know how much I've suffered. You don't know how much I've given up and continue to give up to be a Christian. Or like, you know, I've, I've tried this. I've, I've tried to serve I've tried to give, but the very people I trusted, the very people I thought were my brothers and sisters in Christ, they took advantage of me, threw me under the bus. You don't know how much I've been burnt. And if you are grappling with that right now, I want to say to you that you're right, that you're completely right, that the standard to which Paul calls the Philippian church is impossible if we do so out of our own strength and effort. It is why he goes on to write 
in Philippians 2, chapter 5, some of the most sublime verses of the humiliation of Christ, the humility of Christ, the exaltation of Christ. It is why theologians have spilled so much ink just trying to grapple with the high Christology of, of deity that we see in these next verses as we're going to walk through. And Paul is saying, don't do this on your own strength. Do it in Christ. Look with me in verse 5. Have this mind, this mindset, this attitude among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. When we suffer, when we serve, we are not the ones doing it. It is God doing it through us in Christ. Verse 6, who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Some translations uh, translate this as, he did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited. And I think that's really helpful because when we look at the people in our world who have ascended to the top of the ladder, those who have seemingly ultimate power, influence, wealth, people like Jeffrey Epstein and his friends who use their influence and power to exploit the weak and the vulnerable, we cannot understand the humility of Christ, who even though he was God himself, did not take a shortcut. He did not come into this world as a rich person, a, per a person of political authority. How did he come? He emptied himself as seven by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Do you know that Christianity is the only religion that tells us not how to make our way up to God, but it tells us that God came down not just to save us, but to serve us. This is our God. This is our Jesus. And some of the most beautiful verses that, of, of this is in John 13. On the final night of Jesus' life, he did what many of us would do. If you knew that you're going to die the next day, uh, you would probably have a meal with your loved ones, right? And, and that's what Jesus does. He spends the evening sharing a meal with the 12 men he had loved, nurtured, and now was going to pass on his ministry. But what he does after the meal is very different from what we would do. Jesus didn't um, have a round of speeches celebrating, you know, um, what he has accomplished on earth. They didn't uh, share stories of, of funny events during their three years together. What does Jesus do? He takes off his outer garments, ties a towel around his waist, pours water into a basin, and begins to wash his disciples' feet one by one, including Judas. This is our God, who on the night, the final night of his life, continued to serve his people. Do you know how I know that Jesus is the Son of God? Not by the wisdom of his teaching, not by the excitement of his miracles. I know personally that Jesus is the Son of God because of how he loved his enemies. We do not understand this. We cannot begin to fathom 
the divinity of God because we, are, we love ourselves too much. We are lovers of ourselves and haters of God. That when we see such a humble use of power, we have no categories to understand. Our world tells us, climb the ladder. Happiness is at the top. A successful life is where more people serve you. Lead bigger teams, accumulate more wealth and influence. Make a dent in the universe. What is the face of divinity? Coming down the ladder to the bottom and washing the feet of sinners. But Jesus goes further. Look with me in verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Death on the cross. Jesus isn't just serve us. He went to the cross to die for our sins. And friends, this is the gospel. God loves you. He didn't just do an act 2,000 years ago and he's absent. No, we see this Christ who is so humble, so loving, and his heart is not to condemn or turn away or wait for you to get your life together. He longs to serve you. This is our God. Would you consider this Christ? Would you consider taking on his mindset? We can serve other people and we can suffer for the gospel because Christ did it first for us. Do you know how valued you are? Do you know how precious you are? Do you know the price that Christ paid for you to know him? We need to know this, friends, because if we don't, we can't do it. <laughs> we can only do it to suffer for the gospel, to serve others, because Christ did it for us first, and Christ continues to do it for us. Only God can carry this weight, but he promises to do it when we take on his mindset and we do it in him. Have this mind in Christ so that you too can suffer for the gospel and serve others. Verse 9. To understand verses uh, 9 to 11, it's helpful to see, uh, unlike the previous section we just read, where Christ was uh, the, the main actor provoking the action, now the spotlight shines on God the Father and His response to Christ's humility and obedience. Verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. It's a lot to unpack here, but I think the one thing that is helpful for us is that very often we burn out, we pour ourselves dry in serving and suffering because we are seeking the approval of other people. How was Jesus able to remain so faithful even in the midst of the crowds calling him to be king? How was he to, uh, able to remain faithful to the mission even when Peter told him to turn away from Jerusalem? He was able to do that because he didn't serve and suffer primarily for us. He did it in obedience to God. And the encouragement we see here is that if you want to live this Christian life, you want to have the gospel transform your life. Believe that 
the only opinion that matters at the end of the day is not your parents, your boss, your spouse, your kids. Yes, they matter, but the only opinion that matters is God's. And when we serve and suffer, not to win the approval of man, but we do so out of the approval that we already have in God, (laughs) we can do it. This will change our lives. This will be a magnificent witness to the world that Christ is better, that this gospel is real, that these people love one another, and therefore they are Jesus' disciples. Jesus is with us when we do it. Would you consider trusting in him, depending on him, taking on his mindset as you suffer for the gospel joyfully and serve one another in humility? And so how does the, what does living for the gospel look like? In summary, we'll take on the mindset of Christ. We'll suffer for the gospel. We'll serve one another, not by our own strength, but in, our, in the strength that Christ gives as we're united in him. As I close, I want to uh, share a story of someone who really uh, taught me this in a very profound way. He doesn't come here anymore but uh, Brian Kusunoki used to be a CG leader here. And I didn't actually meet him in person, but um, after I did my internship here and I went to the US uh, in San Francisco, I got connected with him. And in those early months, um, as a newly newly, uh, married couple, I was in a really bad place. You see, we had uh, gone to the US for my wife's career. uh, found an amazing opportunity in a tech startup in Silicon Valley. But if I wanted to go with her, I would have to go on a dependent visa. So imagine me. You know, I had just done an amazing internship at RHC, uh, really loved it. And prior to that, I had left uh, a career in, in banking where you know, um, I was quite used to a certain level of prestige and affluence. And now here I was in San Francisco alone, sitting in a rented Airbnb, Waiting for my son to come. Uh, sorry, waiting for my wife to come home after work. But I was doing that time. I met Uncle Brian, and Uncle Brian had ascended the ladder. He had a very successful finance career, and in a time where other people would spend looking for investment opportunities, playing golf, traveling the world, Uncle Brian chose to be my friend. <laughs> Uncle Brian had decided to be an unpaid pastor in um, this house church movement that we were a part of. And he would open his beautiful apartment that overlooked the Pacific Ocean in Embarcadero in, in San Francisco downtown. And he would uh, host people at the bottom of the ladder, people like me who were uh, foreigners who couldn't work, uh, former drug addicts, homeless people who had come to this house church from all over the country even with uh, tech professionals like my wife. And during the week, he would text me, say, how's my friend Dan? He would do Bible studies. He would reach out. And when you weren't looking, he would help to financially support other house pastors who had no income, struggling to make ends meet. And to me, he said, why would this guy do this? Why would he want to spend his golden years hanging out with people like us? You see, Uncle Brian, he lived something bigger than himself. And he showed me 
that living for the gospel is not only better than living for ourselves, but more beautiful. So let us consider this and let us try to do the same in Christ. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that whatever you call us to do, you have done first and you continue to do it in us. Help us, O Lord, to not just start with the gospel, but to continue in the gospel, even in our heartache and disappointments, to know that we can do all things in Christ. Give us faith to believe in this and give us comfort for those who are suffering. We thank you that you listen to our prayers and that you love us and that you have done all things and you work all things for our good. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.